0: Some suggest this morning that we stand on holy ground, not because of the place we are at, but because of the text we are looking at. Many different ways of expressing the incredible nature of Romans 8 has been written, and I'm not going to quote any of them, but just recognize that many people have said this is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Um, I tend to enjoy and appreciate what I'm studying at the moment. And, of course, what I've just been studying is Romans 8. So, right now, this is the most incredible passage in the Bible. But it stands in a context, and we've spent time in chapter 6, chapter 7, and now we're entering chapter 8 of Romans. And so I'll be referring back to that at some point to this morning. We'll probably take some time and try and trace through. Just because this passage is only so significant, therefore, as Paul says, because of what has gone before. And so what Dr. Fish covered last week in terms of the struggle and the difficulty, he was desperate to get into chapter 8. And so I'm thankful to follow him because he set up the desperation of struggle. And yet even chapter 7 ends by hope and rejoicing in an expectation of what Paul's going to get into in chapter 8. So we want to look at this passage. Again, put Galatians on the back, just in case you see some connections, I may refer to them. Most of you have memorized those passages, um, so you will see some connection as we look through Romans 8 today. In verses 1 through 4, we see what God has done there is therefore no condemnation. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 have both produced a certain amount of response that I feel condemned. I feel unable. I can't do it. Now, Paul did provide in those contexts some relief and some response to that, but now he sort of closes out, in a sense, all of chapter 5-8 through By saying there's no condemnation. In other words, the expectation is you might still be feeling some (laughs) condemnation. It's not a self-condemnation. It's a condemnation from God. It's a pronouncement of judgment and the carrying out of that judgment, the punishment. But for those that are in Christ, which is what was established in chapter 6 and even back in chapter 5, there is no condemnation. I don't know how to from even my own self, to appreciate the depth of relief that should create in us. Uh, I'm not going to spend long on it, but maybe later you can pause and just think about any condemnation that you have ever felt for the sin and failure. If you are in Christ, there is none. And again, it's linked to being in Christ, Paul says. The reason we are not in condemnation is found in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free. To be condemned is to not have any freedom. You are imprisoned. No option, no availability of getting out. But the law of the spirit of life, the life-giving spirit, this is the spirit of life, the life-giving spirit, and again, throughout our study of Romans, we've been contrasting the idea of life and death. Death comes through sin. Death, we found, has come through the law, as we're going to see here again as well. But life comes through the Spirit. Again, the Spirit has been hinted at, but in this chapter, over and over and over again, the Spirit appears because He is the source of help and hope. He is the means by which we live out being in Christ, as we've talked about. So the law of the Spirit of life is contrasted with, here in verse 2 with the law of sin and death. And again, if we took time to read back to chapter 7, in fact, let's do it. You're already there in your your Bible unless you're just using my paper this morning. Notice what it says in verse 22 of chapter 7. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law. This is the law of sin and death that Paul's referring to in verse 2. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Captive. You are enslaved to this law, this principle that causes us to rebel against God and ultimately leads to death. So this principle, and Paul uses the word law in different ways. It's not always referring to the Old Testament law here. Again, it's the principle of the Spirit working in us because we're in Christ. And that Spirit gives life, as he's going to say, as contrast to the principle that we act on when We rebel against God and go against the Spirit, as he's going to say, that leads to death. He explains further in verse 3 what God has done. I wish we could spend the entire time this morning here. Because God has done what the law could not do. Again, the law was weakened by our flesh. This is all about chapter 7. We could not do, we could not be. And even though the law is holy and righteous, it exposed our sin and in a sense made sin more... Real for us, but ultimately and condemned us. Now we're no longer in condemnation because of the Spirit. And so, what did God do? He freed us. That's what he's done. Freed us through the law of the Spirit of life. Okay? By what means? By sending his own Son. Again, we could be back in John 3.16 and many other places. Paul doesn't use this kind of language very often. Obviously, it permeates his theology that God chose to send his Son. Notice the aspects of his sending. It's in the likeness of sinful flesh. Paul uses very careful wording here. Christ became like us. The Word became flesh. But he was not sinful. He did not have a sin nature. And yet he was made sin for us, as Paul says elsewhere. The one who knew no sin was made sin for us. This is what the Father did to his Son, his most beloved Son. The one who was perfect came in the likeness of sinful flesh, yes, apart from sin, but in every other way, just like us, in order that he might suffer and die. Both his humanity and his deity were necessary for him to accomplish salvation. So, In Christ's flesh, Paul says, God condemned sin, that he judged sin. We are under no condemnation. Why? Because we've been good? Because we've worked really hard? No, absolutely the opposite. We stand condemned because of our sin, but Christ as the atoning sacrifice, that's where the simple words for sin and the likeness of sin and for sin, Paul simply summarizes there the atoning work of Christ Christ where my condemnation, my judgment, my punishment that I fully deserved, still fully deserve, was poured out on the perfect, holy, and sinless Son of God. The perfect fellowship between Father and Son was broken that He might be made sin, that my condemnation might be poured on Him. This is why we routinely remember the death of Christ, why he asked us to take the bread and the cup, that we might be reminded that we might pause, worship, and adore him for what he has done. Because if we don't have this worship, this praise, this recognition of what God has done and what Christ has done for us, we won't make it in as he says. Because actually, as we pause to worship, we're still in the middle of the sentence. Notice the sentence continues because Paul provides in verse 4 the purpose of why God has done this. In order that, that is the purpose that God has done this work of sending His Son, the perfect purpose for which He has set us free through the law of the Spirit of life is that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Wait a minute. I thought chapter 7 said that we, we're not under law, but we're under grace. And yet Paul is summarizing the gospel in a beautiful way and what has happened to us and what God has done and what Christ has done. And he says the purpose of that is not for you to go to heaven. The purpose of that is the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Is Paul asking us, To keep the law? Is that what he's doing? Is that what he's doing? No, he's not. Um, Morris, in his commentary on Romans, asks us to notice this, that Paul does not say we fulfill the law's requirement. He is not saying that we fulfill the law's requirement, but that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Surely this points to the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer. Let me trace just for a few minutes back from the beginning of Romans because I think we sometimes have a concept of salvation that is focused on us and not on God. And if we look carefully at what Paul has been doing when we get to this place, we shouldn't be surprised, but we didn't start from chapter 1 this semester. So I want to go back and read some verses and just highlight that this is not different From Paul's purpose in presenting the gospel in Romans this is his primary point but I think we miss it and if we do miss it because we focus on us in salvation rather than God we won't be able to accomplish what Paul is saying that is the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us you can just listen or since you're in the book of Romans you could flip through but let me start in Romans 6 uh, chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 Some of you have memorized this verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power of God for salvation. That is the very gospel that he's going to expound is the power of God for salvation. In other words, it's powerful enough to save us. But salvation is much more than just deliverance from hell. In fact, Paul Continues in verse 17. For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, quoting from Habakkuk. This is also quoted in Galatians and Hebrews, alluded to as well. Notice what Paul says about the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed. So, if we are saved, God's power is to display God's righteousness. Let me keep reading because in chapter 1 and 2 you're familiar with the judgment of God which contrasts with his righteousness by showing unrighteousness. Chapter 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Then skipping down to verse 32 of chapter 1, though they know God's righteous decree even apart from the law. In other words, There's enough of God's righteousness that has been revealed to them through their conscience that those who practice such things deserve to die. That is the wrath of God because God is righteous and holy. They deserve that. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Romans 3, verses 5 through 8, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, again, Paul's reminding us. What's the point of the gospel? To display God's righteousness. And he's saying, if our unrighteousness shows the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. Again, I can't go into all the details, but Paul is defending the fact that God's righteousness is going to be displayed, and God's purpose in the world and in the gospel of his Son is that righteousness might be displayed. Chapter 4, verse 22, this is why his faith, that is speaking of Abraham, was counted to him as righteousness. Remember, Back the quote from Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith, linking life, linking righteousness, and linking faith. Now Paul in chapter 4 reveals Abraham as the one who has this faith and is justified declared righteous because of his faith. Goes on in verse 23 of chapter 4, but the words it was counted to him, still talking about Abraham, were not written for his sake alone. But for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now we've talked a little bit about this. That is, God declaring us righteous is part of his salvation plan, which means we display his righteousness because positionally we are righteous. What an incredible part of God's saving plan. That links to him, his holiness, and his righteousness. The gospel will display his righteousness. Why? Because we've been declared righteous, no condemnation, nothing that we've done. Our faith has been placed in the Lord Jesus, and righteousness is displayed. Romans 5, verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, this was our link with Adam, Death reigned through that one man, Adam. Much more will those who receive the abundance and grace of grace and the free gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In other words, we've received the free gift of righteousness, but now we will reign in that. In fact, verse 20 of chapter 5 makes this clear. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then again in chapter 6 that we covered, verse 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are brought forth from death to life, Again, the link of life and righteousness is clear. And you're members to God as instruments for righteousness. So there Paul began to build this idea that God saved us to display his righteousness. Yes, positionally justified, but also by our actions. Two more in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed and having been set free from sin you became slaves of righteousness i'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification the end in verse 22 is eternal life. The link of life, the link of righteousness is here. So it should not be surprising that Paul says very clearly in, chapter, in verse 4 that the purpose of what God has done is that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now the question is, do we keep the law then? No, it's the righteous requirement of the law. You have a student handbook In that student handbook, you have rules and responsibilities. Who's the primary policeman in this community to make sure you keep the rules? The RAs, right? I think. I don't know all that you do, but the RAs, that's part of their responsibilities to check on the rules. The question is, is there a section in your student handbook that says how to please and love your RA? What in the world? I thought we were a community of love. But surely, even if that section is not there, you sit around and try and figure out how can I please my RA? And how can I love my RA? Maybe I could bring them coffee. Maybe I could get them flowers. Maybe I could leave them a kind note. Maybe I could text them and show my appreciation and care. I'm sure that's what your intent is, right? No, you think it's probably, I know I'm a little judgmental here, but work with me. You think it's probably enough that you keep the rules so your RA doesn't have to jump on you. So you actually keep your room clean enough. Because the law is there to just tell you how to make sure your RA doesn't get on your case. What if you decided that you were going to live your life in relationship to your RA based on how you would love them and please them? Do you think you'd have to worry about the rules? No, you would keep the rules. That would be a piece of cake. So the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled through the law of love. This is why the fruit of the Spirit, the list on the back side, ends with what? Against such there is no law. There can't be enough laws And it's ridiculous to even think about a list of laws that tell me how to love you. So Paul is saying, yes, the righteous requirement of the law, which Paul in Galatians and later in Romans is going to summarize how to love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you don't have to worry about all the details, legalistic laws and rules. And that's what Paul is saying. If And he's going to say, since you have the Spirit, the righteous requirement of the law will be kept by you because of God's grace working in you. And you don't need a list of rules because you'll be loving to such an extent that the rules will take care of themselves. You'll do them, but that won't be your primary concern. And so that's what Paul is talking about when he says the righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in us. I still haven't finished the sentence. Now we enter the box, if you're trying to follow along in my little table. Because it's fulfilled in us, and then the contrast begins. Those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Again, Paul is saying, now I'm identifying who are these that have responded to the work of God by faith, that are in Christ. These are the ones that walk according to the Spirit. Verse five: For those who live, connecting live and walk, which is a good analogy. According to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh; but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. I don't have time this morning to work through what it means to set your mind on the things of the flesh or the Spirit. Paul doesn't articulate it here. You can turn the list over, and it'll be helpful to review that passage. And that's what we've been doing in our other chapels this this semester. But I do want to touch on one thing, or two things. One, notice in verse 6, the end result. In trying to identify whether we have set our mind on things of the flesh or the Spirit, look at the result. The result is either death, if you set your mind on the flesh, that is enslavement, that is separation from what God intended, what God designed, separation from Him, separation in relationship, separation from all His blessings, So if the result of our life is there in death, then we clearly are walking according to the flesh. For the mind of the Spirit, that is set on the Spirit, it's life and peace. That is all that God intended, the abundant life, yes, ultimately the eternal life. This is why it's the life-giving Spirit that allows us to be able to walk according to the flesh, live according to the flesh, set our minds, and also peace peace. Not the peace with God that we talked about in terms of justification, the positional, although it's rooted in that. This is a peace that comes from doing what pleases God. To set our minds on the flesh, there is no guilt. There is no regret. We do what God wants. And so looking at the end result can tell us where we have been. One other correction I want to make really quickly And that is, when we think about setting our minds on things, we've actually reversed the order, and I sort of set you up even the way I talked about it. You're like, what do I need to think about? Because if I can control what what I think about, then I won't be in the flesh and I'll be in the Spirit. I don't think that's really Paul's point. Notice the flow of the argument. It says, walk according to the Spirit, because those who live according to the Spirit will set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And setting your mind there will lead to life and peace. So it's not so much what you think about. It's how you think. It's the controlling influence of your thinking. This is what means walking according to the flesh or walking to the, according to the Spirit. is what is the controlling influence. There are some things, I don't want to deny this, there are some things that are absolutely wrong for you to think about. Absolutely, there's no time, place, and you know what those are. Most of you know what those things are. But let me suggest that probably that represents maybe 1% or 2% of your thinking. It might be more if you struggle in this area. But for a mature believer who is seeking to follow Jesus, most of those things that are truly evil don't enter our mind. The question is, what is your response to the other things that enter your mind? You see, if you are living according to the Spirit, then all of the thoughts, all those other thoughts that are, in a sense, neutral will become things that are good. They will become things that are right because the Spirit is controlling, which leads to setting your mind on whatever you think about in a good way. Let me try and illustrate this. Uh, Dr. McLeod read this summer Moby Dick. I have not read it. It's sort of on my list, but Probably not, from what I hear the length of it. Um, why did Dr. McLeod, who's an incredible theologian who has faithfully followed the Lord for so many years, spent time I don't know how fast a reader he is, but it, it was a certain amount of time reading Moby Dick this summer. I mean, some of you have peeked into his office. be careful if you enter, and you see the amount of books that he can read besides the Word of God. Why did he waste time reading Moby Dick when he could have been reading God's Word, even polishing some of his notes, or reading some of the other theology books? Was it wrong? Was he setting his mind on something that was inconsistent with the Spirit? No, no. He was able to read that book in such a way that it was Connected with his relationship with God, with the Spirit. He was able to see and understand and appreciate quality literature, understand the way the characters worked, help to see even the human condition as a result of reading this. See, it's not so much what you think about. I gave the exception, okay? But it's who's the controlling influence as you think about these things. Now, reading Moby Dick could become an idol for him, or reading good literature become an idol for him, and he stops reading God's Word, and he stops reading good theology, and then it would be wrong. But let me tell you this, even for Dr. McLeod, reading good theology become, could become an idol. Even reading the Bible could become an idol. Who were the best Bible readers? Who knew the Bible best in the Scriptures? The Pharisees. Did their continual engagement with the law and with the Bible cause them to follow God more faithfully or be consistent with what the righteous requirements of the law were? No. No. It's whether the Spirit is controlling. Because you can read a lot of good theology and become judgmental because you think you're smarter than everybody else. So it's who is controlling you as you think about these things. Again, help from others, help from other Scriptures will help. You might have some Scriptures in your mind. I'll give you one just to consider. Philippians 4, 7 through 8, you have a lot of Scriptures. You know, bring every thought captive and think on things above. Philippians 4, 7, and 8 is popular But let me try and again tell you that I don't think Paul is restricting your thinking. He's actually asking you to expand your thinking in light of the Spirit's control. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, the guarding, controlling influence is the peace of God. Finally, brothers... Whatsoever is true, whatsoever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And this is often presented as, there's only about three things you can think about. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. He does list these things, but then he says, if there is any excellence, and I think I can say this correctly, and there will be because your heart and mind is guarded by the the peace of God, there will be excellence. If there is anything praiseworthy and there will be in Moby Dick because your heart is controlled by the Spirit. So rather than saying, oh, there's only four things that we can think about safely, well, then what in the world will we do on Saturday night? We were having a blast enjoying the fellowship and interaction of believers as we celebrated the creativity of what God has done in us. And We laughed and we enjoyed and we were, at least you could choose, to experience all of that as part of being in the Spirit. All right, I want to cover these verses with a couple of minutes that I have. Verse seven shows the awful nature of being in the flesh. They set their minds in the flesh, it's hostile, it's rebellion against God. But verse nine is again an encouragement. I I wish I had more time, but I don't. That's my fault, not yours. Remember, has Paul commanded them to do anything? There's actually no commands in Romans eight. So I want you to recognize he's trying to get them to know things, believe things, to understand things, so they will ultimately do things. But the point is encouragement. Please see verse 9 as encouragement. You, he's talked about the righteous requirement being fulfilled in us. And then he talks generically, those who live, those who live, those. But now in verse 9 he's going to say an incredible encouragement to these ones that are in Christ. He doesn't know them well, but if they followed his gospel, They are in Christ. And he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, and again, it's you could translate it since, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. He's trying to encourage them, not cause them to doubt, not cause them to fear or lack insurance. He says you are in the Spirit. Again, to define in the two minutes I have in the flesh is almost impossible. But to be in the flesh, which he says there's not, is where the flesh is completely controlling and dictating your life. You think about you. It's not the struggle in Romans 7 that uh, Dr. Fish made clear is a part of the Christian life. That struggle actually can indicate that we are in the Spirit and still struggling. Those that are in the flesh, as he says, cannot please God. But you, if you truly have trusted in Christ or in the Spirit, be encouraged. Even in the battle, even in the struggle, be encouraged that you belong to Christ. Therefore, there is no condemnation. Paul closes in verse 10 and 11, and I must as well pointing to the future. And thankfully, we've got the rest of the chapter 8 for our other speakers to work out this future. But Paul makes it very, very clear that you can't fulfill the righteous requirements of the law unless you have a view of the future. And the future is resurrection. Resurrection. So even the struggle is linked to the fact that we still have flesh. We are not in the flesh if we're using Paul's language we have the, still the struggle, the wrestle with the flesh. The works of the flesh apparently can still be produced in us, but they aren't can control us. Otherwise, as Galatians says, what we don't aren't a part of the kingdom of God. But we still are commanded not to do them. So, in the spirit, we're able to celebrate and rejoice that our future is secure because we have the same expectation of the resurrection of Christ. Yeah, having the spirit gives us the assurance that we will be raised. That's the future aspect of salvation that doesn't cause us to give up. It's too hard. It's too difficult. It's the very motivating factor that allows us to please God. And this will be worked out in the rest of chapter 8. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are not un under condemnation. Be encouraged that we are in Christ and for all that God has done for us. Be encouraged that we are fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. Do that. Help each other do that. Allow yourself to submit to the Spirit. That is the answer. We have everything we need in the Spirit, but it's His indwelling presence that allows us to submit to His work And the works of the flesh, struggle, fight, but not in your own power. Please, not in your own power. Do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, the one that's been given to us.